Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. Um, and with me today is Nathan Fox. How's it going, Nathan? Doing well. Um, all good. Been an awesome last week of nothing but playing Fallout 4 constantly on my PlayStation. If there's any other nerds out there that are excited about Fallout 4, you can um, send me a note and we can geek out about it. But uh, Ben, you're not a video gamer. No, I'm not. Um, I did really want a Nintendo when I was growing up, and I finally got one when I was older. So that was <laughs> the extent of my video gaming. What's I imagine Fallout 4. It's amazing. Like, yeah, what's your favorite Nintendo game? Oh, uh, well, that was the thing is we finally got it. I finally convinced um, my parents to get a Nintendo. They were really opposed to that. And <laughs> you have to have games to... <laughs> enjoy the machine so i think we only had like tetris and you know mario brothers the one that came with it so uh-huh. it was uh it was still like another uphill battle from there well those are still great games tetris is a great game yeah but yeah they, no, they were good mario games. brothers is awesome yeah um but it was limited compared to my friends who had um a lot more different devices and uh playstation i remember and a lot of games that went with that. Now, Fallout 4, that sounds like something that involves a lot of shooting. Uh, it does involve a lot of shooting, or bludgeoning. Um, if you decide oh, okay. you want to go like melee, you can just get like a baseball bat and run around the Commonwealth and just bash people on the head. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty cool. It's post-apocalyptic. You uh, are in uh, Massachusetts, which is it's actually really cool, because I lived in Boston for um, a few years. And uh, so... And it's it's pretty faithful to like the actual geography of Boston. Oh, okay, so cool. It's, it's I haven't been back in like a decade uh, to Boston, but it's really cool to realize like, oh shit, I'm walking down the street, and I'm on Boylston, mm-hmm. and I know I'm like, isn't the library like right? And sure enough, then here comes the public library, and here comes the <laughs> Trinity Church, and here comes the Boston Common and the Freedom Trail, and like the whole the whole thing like. It's not a perfect one-to-one map. Like they've they've cartoonified it a little bit and shrunk it yeah. down a little bit and and mm. and blown it up with um, nukes. Mm. But um, other than that, it's like really cool to be exploring around Boston and uh, yeah, Fallout is just like a very quirky um, post-apocalyptic role-playing game, action mm-hmm. role-playing game. It's amazing. What about your boys? Your boys play games? Uh, you know they have games on their devices but we try to limit that too because i guess you're not supposed to do that too much or you'll fry your brain if you're young what are you talking about oh uh (laughs) this is true for little kids so we have uh we have kids who are you know um three and five and then eight and 11 and so for the but the really young kids i guess if you do more than like an hour or something a day of any screen time um it de- increases your chances of being distracted uh, uh, later. Okay, so like I can there's see that. developmental issues going on. I can see that, but it's really hard to keep them away from those things. So, I mean, for older kids, I'm always like recommending games. I feel like not that I'm a parent, so I don't know shit. But it, it's like I know what influence games have had on my life, and mm-hmm. I feel like they have been, you know, almost nothing but good. As far yeah. as as far as the problem solving that's involved in games, you know, when I'm when I'm playing Fallout, I mean, I'm I am running around shooting things, but that's not primarily the what I'm doing. What I'm what I'm primarily doing is like 
trying to achieve goals based on limited resources. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I don't know much about uh, games in terms of for older kids. I'm not necessarily opposed, but I'm not necessarily interested. So I'm not like pushing it, you know, I see. or like, Oh, let's go get this game or whatever. So, yeah. Well, yeah. they're going to be doing plenty of um, pushing for that. I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, this is episode 48, by the way. I forgot to mention that, but not that it's a huge deal. And we have some interesting stuff today. We're going to talk about um, some... Uh, we have a, a email from a listener who's wondering whether to take the December test, which is just a few couple weeks from now. By the time this comes out, it'll be imminent. For that, yeah. So. Yeah, about a week or so. Yeah. And then we... Want to do some logical reasoning questions again from two thousand, the June two thousand seven LSAT, and talk about the third game on the October two thousand fifteen LSAT, which just came out at least as of this podcast, and uh, sort of Nathan, you mentioned you wanted to talk about how this might change the way you approach games or think about games a little bit. It's it's interesting. I mean. Um... I've learned a lot from you over the last couple of years about games and, you know, the, the approach of doing the if questions first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it kind of changed the way that I um, approach games in certain circumstances. It made me a little bit more reluctant to do um, like worlds or templates before mm-hmm. I start the game. Yeah. But I found that this October, so this is spoilers, by the way, um, and we're going to talk about this mostly at the end of the show. So if you're trying to save the October 2015 test and you don't want to hear us talk about it, um, you, you'll you just be able to skip the end of the show. But the, the point, Ben, that I, I find it to be really pretty interesting because I thought that the doing I, what I when I did the if questions first on this game, I got stuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I had to actually kind of revert back to. Um, there is an approach. I don't know how you did the game. Well, we'll talk about it when we get into it. But there is an approach using worlds that just really crushes the game. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. pretty difficult if you don't do that, I thought. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Anyway. Um, we'll get cool. into that yeah, at the well, end of the show. Yeah, yeah so we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. We'll give you a fair warning so you can just uh, stop listening to the podcast if you haven't taken that test yet. And that's going to be test uh, 76 for those of you who are familiar with the numbers. But... um. Let's jump into this question from our listener. We don't, uh, by the way, when you do send in questions, tell us uh, what name you want us to use, if any, or keep it anonymous. For this particular listener, we're not sure, so we won't say any names. But um, this person has been preparing uh, just recently, right? It doesn't sound like she's been preparing for very long. And she's scoring in the 130s. And like we said, we have two weeks until the test, and she's wondering, should I take the December LSAT? Everyone, all her peers are saying just focus on studying and take the test. Yeah, well, let's read a little bit of it. We'll give a little bit of flavor, okay? I'll, 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 I'll read a little bit of the letter. This is excerpts. Uh, my GPA blows 3.3. I have three Fs on my transcript. Um... And I'm more than halfway through the Princeton Review course. It's a shame it's not refundable because the teacher is archaically boring and my test scores have actually decreased. The last one was a 134. Um, Okay, this is bad times so far. This is bad times. Yeah. Uh, There are 17 days until the December test and I am signed up. 
Uh, feels like an extreme rush to be taking the December test, but every person I speak to says, quote, just focus on studying and take the test. Do you think it makes sense to take the December test? I am certain I will need to take it again and feel as though making it the primary focus right now is putting me in the wake with everyone else who submits the application after the December test and a waste of time. Okay, stop there. What do, what do we what are we thinking? If you're at 134 and you have 17 days till the December test, what's your uh, what's your gut reaction to that? Uh, I think this is a clear no. I mean, she's not very close to any score that's going to get her into any decent law school. So taking it in December would seem like just putting a score on her record that's going to be useless. Yeah, my gut would say the exact same thing. I don't see you getting from 134 to any reasonable LSAT score in 17 days. Um, by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be more like 10 days until the December test. Um, I feel like that is not happening. Nope. Um, not to say that it's impossible. But it sounds like, you know, the course that you're taking hasn't been working for you so far. Uh, I, I have, like, why is that going to change between now and the December test? Yeah, I, I would like to say to our listeners that if you're in a less clear position, I mean, in the 130s is pretty low, so I think this makes this kind of an easier case. Yeah. But if, in, if you're in a less clear position and you're closer to the score that you want and you're within 17 days, that means that you don't have time to, you don't have the option to re- get a refund for your test. So I would say plan to take it and then keep in mind you could always withdraw the night before if you don't get close enough to a score that's worth, you know, keeping on your record or having. Totally, yeah. Yeah, the, the partial refund deadline, when is that? Is that already passed? Probably yeah, it is already passed. passed. I don't remember the exact day, but it's, you know... Um, it's probably it's the same day as like the weeks. late registration deadline. Um, anyway, yeah, partial mm-hmm. refund is already passed. If you're signed up now, your only options are take the test or withdraw. Mm-hmm. I guess, or no-show, which would be silly. Um, you can withdraw up to midnight East Coast time on the night before the test. Uh, you have to withdraw online. I would recommend not waiting until the exact last minute. <laughs> and it, remember, it is also East Coast time. So if you're on West Coast time, that's going to be 9 p.m. the day before. But waiting until the last second would be really silly. I can imagine the LSAC website crashing at the last minute and you not being able to withdraw. That would be bad. So if you're going to withdraw, you know, make sure you do it a day or two before. Um, you don't get a refund for that, but it doesn't show up on your record. It's as if you were never even uh, enrolled. It does not count as one of your three attempts. Won't show up on your score record. Kind of no harm, no foul. You just lose the hundred and seventy-five bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, ben, I think you're trying to say, you know, if you're if you're closer, giving give me, give me an, a hypothesis of somebody who might be able to like make, you know, make it worth make it happen in the last ten days or so. Uh, so within the last 10, 15 days, um, if you're trying to get up five or six points, it's a little tough, I think, to do that. That's a lot of points, but it's not totally unreasonable because that's within the range of, you know, a fluctuation that happens a lot of times. So. Yeah, and you see people make last-minute breakthroughs all the time. I mean, pretty much every class, I have somebody who, like, solves the logic games kind of in the last minute. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if we were talking about somebody who was at 154 and wanting a 160, 
mm-hmm. then we might totally say like, well, does it feel like you're getting it? Has it been when I when I do my explanations in class, does it make sense to you? When you read my explanations, does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. And if it's making sense to you, then you're probably on the verge of it like clicking and and getting there. If we were talking about 154 to 160, I would say, hey, you're already signed up. Let's give it a shot. If you don't make it, you know, your practice tests, if they're not better three days before the test, you could always withdraw. But let's keep like shooting for it. Mm-hmm. For uh, for our listener here, it, it, it's, it does seem like bad news. I just don't I don't see because I mean what we talked about this before. I think I mean, what's what's the uh, what's the number where you you worry when someone goes to law school with X score? Uh, I would say anything in the one forties or lower. Yeah, I, for sure. I'd like to see them above one fifty. One fifty minimum, I think. Mm-hmm. So it is, and now you can get into law school with a lot lower than that. Yes, especially now. And I have had students who have who have ended up with lower than that and ended up with successful legal careers. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it, it does work out for some people, but it's it increases the chances dramatically that you're going to struggle in law school if you're in the one forties or lower, and and you that's your best you can do on the LSAT, your best final score it really increases the chances that you're going to struggle in law school and struggle with the bar exam, especially if you live in a state with a difficult bar exam. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, in California, I worry about my students who, if they, if they study their best and they end up in the one forties somewhere, I, I think I spend more time trying to talk them out of law school than anything else. Mm-hmm. So this listener seemed pretty far off. Yeah. Um, I know you're not keen on accommodations, but I do have a learning disability and I'm sure that's one large issue with the test. Uh, okay. We talked about, um, accommodations last episode, episode 47. Mm-hmm. Did you get any hate mail from that? No, I Did didn't you? either. No, I was kind of expecting that I would get some though, but, um, no, I guess, uh, people understood us. We don't, we don't hate accommodations. What what mm-hmm. what's your advice here for this listener? Yeah, well, it sounds like she's misunderstanding us a little bit. She says yeah. she she knows that we're not keen on accommodations. Uh, if someone asked me whether or not they should get accommodations, I would say go for it. Um, it's a huge advantage, so you should take advantage of it. But especially in her case, she says I do have a learning disability. I think we're just mainly concerned about the overall policy of letting anyone and everyone get accommodations because there are a lot of people who likely deserve them but don't even know that they can seek them out or that they should or whatnot. And so they won't, they'll be competing on an unlevel playing field. Yeah, to be super clear, I think we both would absolutely recommend our students if you think you have a case for accommodations, if you feel like you need if you feel like you have a learning disability, if a doctor has told you that you have a learning disability and you feel like accommodations would help you on the LSAT, you absolutely should apply for those accommodations. Yeah, I, I have not yet gone as far as actually printing out the application and handing it out to all of my classes, <laughs> but I'm awful goddamn tempted to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it could be an enormous help for the people who actually end up getting it. It's a huge help and mm-hmm. i think 
we're both, as we talked about at length in episode 47, I think we're both a little bit concerned about whether this really is leveling the playing field or creating an unfair advantage for the people who get the accommodations. Mm-hmm. But when we're advising individual students, we absolutely would tell everybody who has a credible case to go ahead and try to get those accommodations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it can be good for you individually, even if it's bad for the system overall. And I don't even know that we're taking that strong of a position. We're just, I mean, I'm just kind of worried about it. Yeah, just uh, curious to see what happens and what this new flexibility means. Yeah, and I, you know, time will tell. We'll, we'll see how many students are actually getting accommodations and what happens to the curve and everything else. Yeah. Or the scale and everything else. Okay, um... This was a little nuts, I, I, but I, you know, I actually have heard this before, so I, I don't know, but I definitely need a tutor either way, and the Princeton Review tutoring prices range from $450 to $1,050 per hour. You, you've heard that before? Because when I read that. that, I was like, that's, she's misreading that. It nope. has to be like packages or something. Nope. I have heard astronomically high prices out there for certain tutors at some of the big companies they have like their they have levels of different tutors and some of them there's like the elite whatever like super guru guy um who yeah i think i do i think they do i think they would happily charge you that much money i mean i I don't know for sure but i have heard that before it's Uh, out there in the ether these numbers are so specific i mean there's no way that's a typo you know? Yeah. Wow. Well, it's hard for me to see the marginal value of going up that high, but um, okay. It could, be, it could be one of these things, you know, the pricing strategy where it's like you put something on the menu that is astronomically high just so that it makes the other astronomically high prices look not so high. Yeah. Oh, it's only 450 an hour. It's only 450 of- <laughs> an hour instead of $1,000 an hour for tutoring. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Ben. Maybe we need to raise our rates. Yeah. Now, now our rates look small. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, those numbers are crazy. Um, ben and I both charge significantly lower than the low end of that range. Um, I believe that most of these um, companies also like really will try to sell you big, big packages of like many hours at that rate too. So we could be looking at wow. like you know twenty, thirty thousand dollar tutoring packages. So this must be the sons and daughters of um, business titans. Who yeah, right. Oil executives um, who would pay those prices. Anyhow, um, you know, what would you even say to a student who was telling who with a 134 was asking you about private tutoring? Well, so my general rule of thumb is that the lower you're scoring, the more beneficial um a class is, I mean, it's not that a class is more beneficial than tutoring. Tutoring is always hands down better because it's 100% it's focused on your issues, your problems, right? So we can slow down if something doesn't make sense. We can speed up if it does. But when you're thinking about the cost of tutoring versus the cost of a class, which is so much lo- lower, uh, at least per hour, um, if you're not scoring very high, if you're in the 130s, 140s, 150s, a class even sometimes the 160, well, yeah, the 160s. But the lower your score, the more a class makes sense because the more 
of what we're talking about is going to apply to you. Everything we say is going to be useful. The higher your score, especially as you get up into the upper 160s and 170s, of course, uh, most of what you hear in class is going to be things that you understand. It's not that it's not going to be useful, but a lot of it's going to be review. And so when someone is scoring this low, I'm thinking, okay, tutoring might make sense for you. In fact, if because maybe the class would even be moving too fast, right? So tutoring could be helpful, but I would not recommend someone who costs $1,000 an hour, let alone 450 because... I feel yeah. like they can get a lot of help even from someone who's just like a study buddy. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, like, how much could you learn um, from someone who costs less and at least get the basics down before you get into all these nuances? I mean, there's some yeah. value in having a good teacher, especially with someone who's struggling so much. But I don't know. Those prices just blow my mind. Well, but even if it was our prices, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, I mean... We, you and I both charge $250 an hour or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, which is a lot, right? I mean, I, I understand that it's a lot and not everybody can afford it, but if someone called me with a 134 and they wanted to talk about private tutoring, I really think I would be trying to talk them out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I can't in good conscience, I don't think. If if money is no object to them and if they just, you know, they've tried a class and it's really not working or if they just know that they learn best one-on-one, I'm not saying that I will, like, refuse necessarily, but using me to get you off of your 134 is a little bit like using a brain surgeon to walk to Walgreens and buy you aspirin. You know, it's it's yeah. like, it's just like, I I get paid for my very special skills which are helping people in the 160s move into the 170s or helping people in the high 150s get to the 160s or 170s mm-hmm. or helping people who are at 172 get to 176. You know, that's like, that's what I can do. Yeah. And I can help people from 134 get into the 140s and 150s, but I think it would be much better that you do that alongside 30 other students in a class for a much lower price. Yeah. Or read my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's that's tough. Um, get yourself to one hundred and forty or one hundred and fifty, and then maybe you start encountering some of the specialized problems that I really get paid for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, if you're in the one hundred and fifties or one hundred and sixties, and you can't quite yet grasp the difference between a sufficient assumption question and a necessary assumption question. That's where I can help you. But like when you're at 134, you're answering what? 30%, 40% of the questions correctly? Not even 40% of the questions correctly? Like at 134, you're just like not even getting it. Mm-hmm. And so there you have so many broad problems with the test that it's like, I don't, it just, <laughs> I just don't think it's good value to use special one-on-one consulting services at that point. Yeah, I I mean, I do think there is some value in one-on-one consulting in the sense that these, if you're scoring in this range, you may need a lot of personalized help. But hopefully you can find someone who doesn't cost as much and can work through you, you know, give you a lot more hours because you're going to need that time. Uh, Whereas someone in this position might not be able to keep up with the class 
you know, depending on how fast the class is moving. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, there is also a point at which I would be, I hate to be like crushing people's dreams, but there's a point where it's like, you know, if you're having a hard time keeping up with your like basic fundamental LSAT class, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is, this is going to be a long road for you. Yeah. You know, it's like how much banging, if you're banging your head against the wall of like trying to crack 140 on the LSAT, I, I gotta, I gotta really probe there and, and, and ask you how certain you are that you really want to be a lawyer. Is that really, is this really the best way for you to go? Because again, you know, people in the, in this range, like we're talking mid one thirties here, um, generally very weak vocabulary, mm-hmm. right? Like gonna, gonna have tons of words on the test that you just don't understand. Yeah. And it's like, boy, you know, you don't need, you don't need an LSAT tutor to explain words to you, you need to read more mm-hmm. and you need mm-hmm. to read more for five years yeah. in order to increase your vocabulary, in order to just bring sort of your general verbal abilities up to kind of par so that you can then compete on this level. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, people don't understand. I don't think what law school is and what lawyers do. Um, lawyers are modern day gladiators who use the English language as their weapon. Mm-hmm. If you're not good in using the English language, does that make sense? Good in I'm, I'm good at words and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I do good words. Um, point is if, if you have a shitty vocabulary, you're at a disadvantage, major disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And th- there's, there's no amount of like LSAT strategy. That's going to, that's going to overcome that. Not to say that you can't improve off of a 134, and I have seen students make it from the 130s into the 160s. Especially so, if that 134 is your first test ever and you haven't done anything before. Right. But if but, you've been studying and you're getting that, that's a little concerning. Yeah, this is somebody halfway through the course and still in the mid-low 140s, or 130s. It's like, boy, this does not feel like it's working. Um so, yeah, again, listener, thank you very much for writing in. We appreciate you, you know, asking us for help. We do want to help you as much as we can. Um, but this is looking like a this is looking like a big challenge. And so I would just be saying, you know, how how certain are you that this is the right path? Yeah. So the last uh thing I would say here and hopefully this is the silver lining is that she is taking a class and she's saying that her test scores have gone down. Yeah. So I'm worried that maybe, I mean, we have no idea, but maybe this particular class or this teacher has focused too much on, you know, formal logic or diagramming everything. Sometimes you run into people who have very, like, strict and specific ways of doing the test that are actually not helpful for people who don't have a good grasp of that. And right. so maybe she's disconnected from the test and not thinking about it intuitively right. and just trying to like power through everything, which could be destroying her score. Yeah, well, and if she just forgot everything he said, she'd be doing better. Yeah, another way that she could be fucking this up is like thinking too much about the time and trying to do too many questions. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, these big prep classes, not only do they overstress formal logic and diagramming and all that shit, but they also overstress, 
hey, you have 35 minutes and there's 25 questions, and that means that you have 85 seconds per question, and boy, <laughs> you better hurry. They do that. They literally say I that. Love they that. They literally I love say that. 85 yeah. seconds per question on the logical reasoning. And it's like, yeah. that is so ridiculous. If you're in the 130s, you should be doing like half the questions mm-hmm. or less. Mm-hmm. I mean, 134 has got to be like, what, 35 correct or something like that? Yeah. You can get that by doing half the questions. And, and so... I would say step one here, you know, you got to get to 140 before you can get to 145. Mm-hmm. And the, the route to 140, I would think, is like only do the first 10 questions on each section and just make sure you get them right. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, then you got to dig in and figure out why you can't get those ones right. Because those are the easy ones that can be answered almost, almost completely just answered by common sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... That that's where that's where we need to go from one thirty four, and yeah, it's possible that the class is just, I guess maybe yeah, she's not keeping up with the class, and it's all seeming like super technical, and she's looking to the her left and looking to her right, and like people who are scoring one sixty, and she's like trying to keep up with them by finishing the test, and then mm-hmm. she's <laughs> setting herself up for disaster there. Last question she had in the email. Thank you for all these questions, by the way. Uh, last question is, will schools truly frown upon the February score? Uh, I don't think the schools that she's likely going to be applying to, probably in the mid, hopefully in the mid-150s, depending on where she ends up, are going to frown upon the February score. They are going to be grateful for the applicants that they can get. Obviously, the earlier you can apply, the better. But a February school score for these schools is, I think, in some cases early. Some of these schools are extending their deadline till June, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. It depends on where she applies. But I mean, to make it clear, I, some people think that there's like this stigma against the February score. There, there absolutely is not. The reason why we why we talk down about the February test is simply of when you are applying in the application cycle. Um. It's clear that when you apply late in the application cycle, you don't get into as good of schools and you don't get as as good of scholarship offers. Um, and so the only reason why I tell people to, to not, I don't tell people not to take the February test. I tell people to take the February test and then submit their applications on September 1st for the following September admissions. Yeah, and the reason why I advise people to do that is because I want you to get into the best school you can possibly get into, and I want you to get the best scholarship offer you can possibly get. Mm-hmm. Which is why we like to apply early in the cycle if all else is equal. Yeah, um, I almost feel like the worst thing that could happen to this student is improve her LSAT score to a one forty five on the February test. Apply late to a pretty low ranked school get in and pay full price. I I feel like that's, that's almost the worst case scenario. You know, I I would really rather you go to a higher ranked school or you get some scholarship money. And so there are too many people I think that are focused on like squeaking in the back door at the last minute. And the thing about the back door at the last minute is that it very well might be open but the kind of school that you're likely to get into and the price that you're likely to pay 
is just not like a kind of value that I think is a, is like, I just don't think it's a good investment. That's all. Yeah. But there's definitely nothing wrong with the February score. Take, take the February test, do really well and then apply for the next cycle and get into all sorts of great schools and get scholarship money. That that's the way to do it. Yeah. All right. Thank you uh, for that question or those questions. Thank you for your email. What's our email address for help again? Yeah, it's help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, you can also tweet us at thinkinglsat. Yeah, so. people have been tweeting us and following us and stuff. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Just start start getting on that a little bit. Um, and as Ben mentioned earlier, if you're going to write us, um, if you're going to email us, it'd be great if you could tell us, uh, give us a name to use on air, so we don't have to talk about you as anonymous. Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. All right. So the at this point, we're going to jump into a question, a logical reasoning question from the June 2007 LSAT. We've done this a lot before, so if you've heard us, you know what we're talking about. If you're just joining us now, you can search for this LSAT. Uh, just Google June 2007 LSAT, and it'll come right up. And then go to the second section, not the first one, which is games, but the second one, which is logical reasoning, and today we're on question 11. So let me go ahead and read this question, and we may stop and comment on it as we go through it or not, but um, then we'll just tell you what we think. So this question says, this again, this is question 11. It is now a common complaint that the electronic media have corroded the intellectual skills required and fostered by the literary media. Okay, any thoughts on that? I mean, I'm naturally resistant. I, I, I'm pushing, I'm always pushing back when I read these um, setups, you know. And so, and this one's a pretty easy one for me to push back on. Mm-hmm. Is like, this ties um, back to what we were talking about earlier almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, what, what are you talking about? I have pretty good intellectual skills, literary skills, whatever. I mean, I, I have, I guess if you listen to me talk, you'd probably be like, dude, you sound like a dumbass. But I, my, my, <laughs> my grammar is not the strongest. Nonetheless, you know, my intellectual skills and my liter, whatever, word skills are just fine for answering the LSAT questions properly. And, you know, electronic media. Oh, you mean like my Kindle? Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean like, blogs um what really what's wrong with that yeah how is that corroding my intellectual skills and by the way to go back to like something like tetris i mean one of the reasons why i'm good at the lsat logic games is because i played the shit out of tetris when i was a kid mm -hmm. and some of those kind of puzzle solving things can really help you with, with with other other intellectual problems so you know that first sentence just sounds like some old man you know complaining complaining yeah one other thing I would note is that it does say it is now a common complaint yeah. that. And yeah. so this is something that the author is quoting, you know, attributing to someone else. The author could certainly agree with it or disagree. We don't know. Um, and so I would note that this is the opinion of someone else. And not surprisingly, the next sentence starts with the word but. Yep. Suggesting the author might go against it, but let's see here. So, but several centuries ago, the complaint was that certain intellectual skills, such as the powerful memory and extemporaneous 
eloquence that were intrinsic to oral culture were being spread, uh, sorry, were being destroyed by the spread of literacy. So they threw in some big words there to try to slow us down, but the bottom line here is that a similar complaint was made a while ago that intellectual skills were being destroyed by literacy. Um, as we transition from an oral culture to a literate one. Um, okay, so sounds like this author agrees with you and disagrees with the common complaint about electronic media, right? Yeah, I think the important thing there is to, to catch that, that what that is is it's an analogous argument. And now I'm pretty certain that the author is going to go ahead and disagree with this. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? The common complaint, hey, electronic media is corroding the intellectual skills that we need from literary, literary media. Mm -hmm. But several centuries ago, the complaint was that, hey, literacy is killing the memory and extemporaneous eloquence that we need for our oral uh, oratory you know, culture. So, And so, yeah, so the author now is saying, Hey, the complaint about electronic media is similar to the complaint about, you know, centuries ago people were complaining about print, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. But I do believe it because it's just, again, it's like, yeah, okay, that seems like the kind of thing that an old man would complain about. Yeah. So then the last sentence, so what awaits us is probably a mere alteration of the human mind rather than its devolution. <laughs> We've got some interesting words in here. Yeah. Um, okay. So, bottom line, the mere alteration of the human mind rather than its devolution. First of all, that's not a word I ever use. Devolution? No. There's a lot of words on the LSAT that are, like, questionable. <laughs> not, not that it's not a word. Just that, like, no one would ever say that. But okay. Yeah. So, uh, given... So you have the word evolution. I'm just guessing on the basis of the way this word sounds that and the context of this argument that devolution is the opposite of evolution. So yeah. this is like going down. This is bad. This is yeah. negative. Degradation, so, destruction, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. So it is probably a mere alteration of the human mind rather than its devolution. In other words, we're just changing. Of course, they use alteration rather than change, but the mind is just changing instead of getting worse. Um, that's not a surprising conclusion given the, the tone of the argument and the direction it was heading. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, it says the reference, this is the question itself, the, the reference to the complaint of several centuries ago that powerful memory and extemporaneous eloquence were being destroyed plays which one of the following roles in the argument? This is a what I would call a role question. It's asking us specifically about a part of the argument, and our job is to go back and figure out what it's actually doing. Is it a premise? Is it evidence? Is it a conclusion, uh, something that's supported by the rest of the argument? Or is it something else, a concession or whatever? And you kind of um, already pointed out what it was because they're asking about the second sentence, which was the analogy to a similar argument that had been made to the past, right? Or a, a reference to an argument that's very similar to the one that's being made now. Yeah. The question is asking, you know, why did they bring up this several cent? Why are they bringing up old shit? 
Why did mm-hmm. they bring up this complaint of several centuries ago? Why, why did they talk about that? Well, they, they talked about it because they were trying to bring up, by analogy, mm-hmm. a similarly wrong opinion, according to them. Yep. They, they believe that this complaint several centuries ago was wrong, mm-hmm. and they're using that to try to prove their conclusion that the current complaint is wrong. Yeah. There, there are two words that I would have in my mind, or maybe two ideas that I'd have in my mind before going into the answer choices. There'd be one, it was a piece of evidence, and two, it was a similar argument to the one that the argument is going against. Yep, uh-huh, yep. And then I think that's right. Uh, for these uh, role questions, I don't know. I think we've talked about this before, but because the answer choices are describing the role that that particular sentence is playing, it might the correct answer might say something like it's evidence that's supporting the conclusion or something like that. But as I read through these answer choices, I stop at certain points in the answer choice and just ask myself, is this actually happening and if it is then i keep going if at any point it's not describing what was happening in the argument then i stop and i mean i might finish the answer choice but if i'm pretty confident that it's wrong then i'll just cross that out and move yeah on. I, that's true of the test as a whole i mean we i'm not in the business of like helping answer choices i'm in the business of killing answer choices I start with the presumption that every answer has a 80% chance of being wrong. So on a question like this, when it's asking me to describe the role played in the argument by a certain phrase, if an answer choice starts off wrong, you know, it's wrong. That's it. Or I would at least dismiss it until I read all five answer choices. Yeah. Yeah. I generally just I, I think students spend way more time trying to justify and rationalize answer choices than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there are times when I will, you know, identify the correct answer like positively, like I'll start reading it and it'll sound good and I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, okay, I think that's probably it. But just as many times I'm gonna just eliminate the four that can't be the answer. Yeah. And I, I think that's the difference is that, you know, somebody like you or I, we have two two ways of getting there to the right answer. Uh, I, two, two ways? You, yeah, you, well, I mean, you can positively identify the correct answer or you can eliminate four wrong answers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's, so that's like we got two ways to mm-hmm. get there. Yeah. I think one mistake that students make is that they, they think that they, they only think about the one way of the mm-hmm. I'm going to find the answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but many times the correct answer will be pretty unattractive. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's better than the other four. Yeah. And so yeah, I mean, I I would I am I got my pencil in my hand, and I do mark up these pages, and I'm because I am crossing out answer choices as I go. Yeah. No, I think that's an excellent general point. The reason I'm mentioning it in particular for this kind of question, a role question, is that. The answer choices tend to be abstract, and I think ten people tend to read the whole answer choice and get overwhelmed by the yeah. abstraction. And these questions in particular, I think, benefit from 
reading part of the answer, stopping and saying, hmm, so far so good? Yes, no, and then yeah. moving on. Yeah. One, one other thing, I mean, before I go into answer choices here, I am going to make a, a, a pretty a strong prediction, I think. Okay. Or the way I like to, to think about these questions is the, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, right? They ask me what role did this phrase play? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to first say, well, was it the conclusion of the argument? That's my, that's like my first bit of analysis because mm-hmm. there's probably going to be an answer that says it's the conclusion of the argument. Mm-hmm. So that either is or is not the right answer. Is it, or is it not the conclusion of the argument? Let's figure that out now. Yeah. So was this argument trying to prove, uh, that several centuries ago, the complaint was that certain intellectual skills, such as the powerful memory and extemporaneous eloquence that were intrinsic to oral culture were being destroyed by the spread of literacy. Is that no. the point of this argument? No, no. It's definitely the the last sentence, which makes sense because it's supported by that idea, but also because it starts with the word so, which is... hint that that's the conclusion. Yeah. That's a, or at least a conclusion. Right. And, and we're thinking, well, what else could be the conclusion? Nothing else could be here because the first sentence was definitely the opinion of other people because it said it is now a common complaint that. And the last sentence, I think a lot of people forget that the word so... Yes, they know it introduces a conclusion, but they forget that it could be an intermediate conclusion. I know you weren't saying that at all, but they right. forget that it could be another conclusion in the argument, not just the main conclusion. And they also forget, and I think this one is even more frequently forgotten, that it points back to a premise. It's not just a conclusion indicator, it's a premise indicator. It tells you that what you just read is a premise, and so if you were debating whether or not that's a conclusion or not, even if you didn't understand English, but you understood the word so, you'd have to look at that and say, well, hmm. The thing before that's a premise and the thing after is a conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's sensible. So here, my, my like, I think it's useful to have these two steps in mind for this type of question. So step one again, is this phrase the conclusion of the argument? Mm-hmm. If not, what is the conclusion of the argument? And then... Is it a premise of the argument? So does the uh, complaint, you know, several centuries ago, the complaint was that certain intellectual skills, such as the powerful memory and extemporaneous eloquence that were intrinsic to oral culture, were being destroyed by the spread of literacy. Mm -hmm. Now, is that really a premise that supports the conclusion? What awaits us is probably a mere alteration of the human mind. Or is it something else? You're talking about the the question the 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 second sentence, right? What well, they're asking us about. Yeah, I mean they they brought it up, but but it's a weird kind of a premise, right? Because what that premise is doing is it's saying, "Hey, here's an here is it it's a prem, it's a premise insofar as like here is a complaint that happened in the past." But what they're saying is it's not really the complaint directly supports the conclusion. It's more like here was the complaint, and that complaint is obviously stupid. Yes, it relies on that assumption, which isn't said, but... Right, right. And that's all I'm trying to say, is that the second sentence doesn't actually support the third, not directly. It supports the third by via this assumption, which is, hey, that's a pretty stupid objection. Well, that's true, but I, I guess I would still consider it 
as evidence. It's just not very complete evidence. Is that what okay. you mean? Y- yes. So if there is, if there is an answer that says it's a premise of the argument, I would want it to say it's a premise of the argument that supports the idea that, and then it will, it'll need to correctly describe the conclusion of the argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, if I suppose if there was an answer that said it's a premise of the argument, I suppose I would have to pick it, but I, I would be pretty skeptical because it just doesn't seem like it's, it's the kind of thing that really directly supports the conclusion here. I don't know. We're getting okay. into the weeds. Anyway, yeah. let's look at the answer choices. Hey, by the way, I just wanted to, so there's in, uh, I'm not an expert in Asian philosophy, but I oh. think I've heard the analogy before, at least, um, from the East and I could be wrong there too, but that there's this idea that there are multiple paths to get to the top of the mountain. And I think that our two paths are actually very, very similar. So these are almost the same, but I, there's, there's slight differences here. I thought it'd be interesting for people to think about this. It's ultimately our goals are the same. We're just accomplishing them slightly differently. You're asking yourself, is that particular part of the passage, the conclusion? If not, where is the conclusion? And then you're asking yourself, is that part of the passage a premise? If not, what is it? Um, if I yeah. got that right, did yep. I get that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, almost do, I do almost the same thing, but it's slightly different. I tend to not actually go back and look for that part of the passage at first. I just make sure I've found the main conclusion. And yeah. then once I've found it, I try to figure out what they're asking about and figure out its relationship to the main conclusion. And sometimes, like you yeah. said... You're like, wait, that is the main conclusion. Yeah, I mean, and also, by the way, that's how you teach it. But what you actually do is you just, you don't even know what type of question it is when you're reading the argument. Mm -hmm. But you're reading the argument critically. And when you read the argument critically, when you get done, you know what the conclusion was. Yes. And you know how the argument went. Yeah, you're absolutely right. and, And so at that point, I should know what it is. Uh, I am adding in that step, though, just in case, because sometimes people do get done, and they read the question, they realize it's a role question. It's like, if you haven't figured out what the conclusion is by now, you should know that this con- this argument does have a conclusion, and you better go back and find it, because that is a big no-no if you don't. It's also just generally, like, if you're if you're getting done with these arguments, and you're frequently not knowing what the conclusion is, Mm-hmm. But then I just don't think you're reading critically enough. I mean, that's part of why we try to teach people to argue. Because if you're arguing, if you're paying attention, if you're actually following along, then that that's how you understand what the argument says. Yeah. And, and you and then if you under, if you can argue, then you probably got the main point. Yeah. If you can't argue, then you probably didn't get the main point because there's usually something wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so answer choice A. So again, we're trying to figure out what role is played. The two words I have in my mind is premise, which I know you, you have some concerns about because it's not exactly a premise. I, I would still say it's a premise, and it seems to be a similar situation to um, what was the argument yeah. is going against. Okay. I would be looking for it's an analogous bad complaint. Okay, cool. So answer choice A, evidence supporting the claim. So far, so good in my mind. Evidence supporting the claim that the intellectual skills fostered by the literary media are being destroyed by the electronic media. 
Whoa. So it started out good. It said it's evidence. I thought that was fine. Okay. But then all of a sudden it says it's supporting the claim that we're actually trying to reject. Which is not, yeah. The, the A is describing, A is misdescribing the argument. The argument mm -hmm. did not make that claim. The argument brought that claim up in mm -hmm. order to try to disagree with that claim. Yeah. So, so it's not A. A is, A is misdescribing the conclusion of the argument. It's the opposite, right? Yes. <laughs> the evidence is not supporting that claim. It's going against that claim. Right, it, exactly. B, an illustration of the general hypothesis. I would stop reading that one. Really? How come? Uh, what? When was there a general hypothesis? Was this really an illustration of any general hypothesis? It just doesn't feel right to me. And I'm not in the business of helping answer choices make sense. So here I would proceed a little more cautiously. When I see an illustration, I think of illustrations as evidence. And so I would look at this second sentence and I would say, okay, I, I mean, we're moving pretty quickly here, but I would not definitively rule it out on the basis of the word illustration. And I would not rule it out on the basis of the phrase general hypothesis, because I could say to myself, all right, um, these are not the words that I would necessarily use right off the bat, but I don't technically see a problem with the word illustration as a word for evidence, and I don't technically see a problem with the phrase general hypothesis for a conclusion that could be considered sort of general. And so I would keep going, I would probably have a slight chip on my shoulder, so much more sensitive to any other problems that come along, um, but I wouldn't definitively rule it out as quickly as you would. Yeah, it smells bad to me. My gut is telling me that that is not going to turn out to be the answer. I would have a hard time saving it from there. I would have a hard time coming up with a phrase, if you start an illustration of the general hypothesis, I would have a hard time filling in the words to make that into the right answer. Okay. So I, w I would just be like, and, and now I'm not 100% conclusively eliminating it. I would just stop reading it and I would move on to C, D, and E, hoping that one of those is a, a cleaner, clearer, correct answer. Interesting. So would you have A crossed out and you'd have B left open? Yes. A was conclusively wrong because it misdescribes the conclusion of the argument. I actually, I, I would probably actually tick off I think I would probably have a little tick off uh, B. I think I would probably have A and B both crossed out. But I mean, A is certainly wrong. B, I haven't even really gotten through it all the way to really 100% no. But if it starts off with an 80% chance of being wrong, and then it starts off with that phrase, I now have it as a 95% chance of being wrong. And at 95% chance of being wrong, I don't need to read it anymore. I mean, it might be that I hate C, D, and E and come back to B, that does happen pretty frequently. The way I do it, I will frequently eliminate all five answers and come back. Um, but the yeah, I I, I <laughs> the way I go fast is by seriously disrespecting the answer choices. So okay, that's um, that's interesting. I would keep going. I would say okay. Um, again, I have a chip on my shoulder because I don't like this language, but I don't have any technical issues with it. And so then being advanced, so it's, all right, let's start from the beginning. An illustration of the general hypothesis being advanced 
that intellectual abilities are inseparable from the means by which people communicate. And by the time I get to the word inseparable, I probably would be done. But it's only what a few more words. What the fuck are you even talking about, B? What is that? What are you talking yeah. about? You know, and it's just like, nope, and you're moving on. So at that point, I would cross it out and I'd be confident that it was wrong. But okay. I wouldn't have been confident after just the word hypothesis. Okay. All right, so C, it says an example of a cultural change. So far, so good. It was a cultural change. Sure. That did not necessarily have a detrimental effect on the human mind overall. Uh, it's not exactly the way I would have described it, but this all fits their language in the conclusion as well, which they said the mere alteration of the human mind. Yeah. So we keep it open. I don't think so, though, because I think I'd be more certain to get rid of C here. Um, the The phrase that they're asking us about is the complaint of several centuries ago. Mm -hmm. And C, the, the complaint is not an example of a cultural change. Okay. So if they would have said the reference to... Uh, the reference to literacy, you know, just the reference to literacy, the reference to the initial spread of literacy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that might be an example of a cultural change that did not necessarily have a detrimental effect on the human mind overall. But the reference to the complaint about literacy, I just don't think that's an example of a cultural change. So I would think that it's not. Okay, so sorry. I, uh, let me just clarify because when I'm so it, it an example. Let, let me just read through this part by part, and then you tell me where you say, "Hey, no, this is wrong." Because when I read an example of a cultural a cultural change, that's it right there. The reference to the complaint about literacy. The complaint about literacy is not an example of cultural change. The spread of literacy is an example of cultural change. But this complaint about literacy is not an example of a cultural change. Hmm. I mean, what, I guess I'm just more broadly thinking of this evidence as an example in the past of where there was a change from an oral culture to a literate culture, and people were making a complaint back then that this is going to be bad, and this is an example... I felt like it was being presented as an example that something that, no, it didn't turn out to be bad. So what awaits us now is not going to be bad. Okay. I would be, I would be pretty skeptical and I would be, I would still be moving on looking for something better. So at this point we both have A and B crossed out. Would you have C crossed out or would you have C? I think I probably would have C crossed out. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's take a look at D. I, I, I would be hesitant to have C crossed out at this point, but okay. Um, you know, if if D or E is a cans down better, then I would even I wouldn't even go back to C. I would yes. just pick it and move on. Okay. Um, D evidence that the claim that the intellectual skills required and fostered by the literary media are being lost is unwarranted. Mm. Uh, evidence. It so again, I don't think it's I don't think it's direct evidence of of that claim. 
the argument is the argument making that claim that the intellectual skills required and fostered by the literary media are being lost is unwarranted. Probably. I don't think it's making that specific claim. It's making a it's going in a different direction, right? What awaits us is probably a mere alteration of the human mind rather than its de-evolution. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess it doesn't actually well, although rather than its devolution, I guess that would be kind of the opposite of the first sentence. Right, like it's not corroding our intellectual skills. It's not devolution of our intellectual skills. It's an alteration of our human mind. It's not devolution. Oh, but I guess, uh, but the change though. So you could still be losing the intellectual skills required and fostered by the literary media because they're changing to something else. Yeah, I, I guess D could be also misdescribing the conclusion of the argument. I feel like unwarranted is is a. It's a term that the LSAT loves to use, which means it's not supported, which is something you might infer from this, but this person is going further than that, right? Or something different. I yeah. Mean, if, if you're saying that they're, we're, we're altering the human mind, I think that that could be compatible with losing these certain skills. Mm, sure, yeah. So what do you think about D? Yeah, I'm not loving it. Okay. Um... E, possible evidence mentioned and then dismissed. Oof. I don't like that. No, it did. It just didn't dismiss that. I mean, it brought up this. It it brought up this complaint mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as an analogous bad argument, but it didn't dismiss it. I mean, it brought it up. Yeah. Mentioned and then dismissed is like. There's a question I remember that brings up moral issues and then says, putting moral issues aside, and then goes on. <laughs> I mean, that would be mentioning and dismissing. Yeah. But I, it didn't, and I never saw it put, the, put these issues aside. Or Plus I never it, saw it like conclusively say, but this is stupid. It'd also be weird to dismiss your evidence, right? And this is possible evidence. I don't think this is being used as possible evidence. This is evidence that the person yeah. is relying on. It's their only evidence since their first sentence yeah. is just the opinion of other people. And anyway, the rest of E is conclusively wrong. That might be cited by supporters of the hypothesis being criticized. No way. No, the, the people who believe that electronic media are corroding our literary skills would not bring up the fact that somebody in the past used to think that uh, literacy was killing our oral skills. Yeah. All right. So it's, the, it's again, it's the exact opposite. All right. So at this point, I mean, I don't have as many issues with C, so I would be inclined to pick it. I'm willing to review D. What would you do at this point? I would go back to C and pick it, I think. I, I just as like... I didn't like any of them, but mm -hmm. I liked C. I hated C the least. Okay. And that's a common experience for me on the test mm. is that I will dislike all the answers. They will all smell bad to me. But one of them is like, yeah, I guess I could eat that. <laughs> I'm like going through the leftovers in the refrigerator. And it's like, I cannot stomach A or B or D or E. Mm -hmm. C is a little bit suspect. But, you know, I got to go with something here. Yeah. I think I'd probably go with C. Okay. Um, I mean, great. it. you know, I, I have my same objection to it, but I just think that we have stronger reasons to get rid of A and B and D and E. Yeah. And yes, it was a cultural change. 
yes, the author is saying that this cultural change did not necessarily have a detrimental effect on the human mind overall. I think I would have to let go of my technical objection from earlier and just go ahead and pick C. Okay. Yeah. Did we look at the answer key? Is the answer key on here? It is, right? Let me see. Oh, good. I was looking at section one. Is C. <laughs> section two. Yeah, C. Yeah, we got it right. Yay. I looked at section one for a half second. I was like, A. Oh, no. no what no. the hell happened? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, cool. So that was question 11. Um, that was question 11. That took a long time. And we have one more item on our agenda. Yeah, it's game three. So what are your thoughts here? You were alluding okay, to the spoiler. fact that you... Oh, this yeah, spoiler. spoiler break. So if you are saving the October 2015 test for a future practice test and you do not want to be tainted at all by our discussion of the October 2015 official LSAT, that's prep test 76, then you should stop listening now. Goodbye. We love you. We'll talk to you next time. But that said, I think people do too much saving of tests mm -hmm. and worrying about saving of tests. I've even had people like they save so many tests that they end up in the end, like not even doing all of the most recent tests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. wouldn't you say it's far more important that you get coverage of the more recent tests than it is that you like save diagnostic tests for the very last minute. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So if, if you're like thinking about using the recent tests, you know, 2010 and beyond, but you're worried that you that you need to save those. I, I don't know. I, there's 15 of them, right, from 2010 and beyond. There's mm -hmm. roughly 15 of those tests that are available. Yeah. Are you really going to do all those before your before your upcoming LSAT? Because yeah. if not, then you shouldn't be saving shit. You should just be like trying to get as much exposure as you can to those tests. Yeah. And I would say particularly the games because the games are the one thing that kind of has evolved over time and. They introduce these new little wrinkles, and I think it's important that you that you get exposed to those wrinkles. So, anyway, we're going to have spoilers right now about October 2015, game number three. Okay. Um, you did it, huh? Did it just recently? Yes. Yeah. Cool. What would you think? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I uh, made the mistake that a lot of people mentioned where they said they misread a rule. I also misread that rule. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was the third rule for me. And uh, I think just because I was going fast and I had just read a similar rule before, I could see why they made that mistake. Thankfully, uh, I caught it in the second question because I couldn't come up with an answer. And I said, what the heck is going on here? Uh, yeah. And so then I went back and just read the rules again. So I think we can go ahead and say this without, I mean, we're not going to talk about the specifics of the game at all. This is, you know, we're very limited in the way that we can talk about these tests. Mm -hmm. But I think it's fair <laughs> to say that one of these rules said consecutive. Mm -hmm. And then the next rule said non-consecutive. Yeah. And I've heard many people say that they misread that. Um, and Ben, you did the exact same thing, which is, yeah. which is interesting. You know, it is kind of cool. They, what did they do? They used, so they used a name. How did they do that? Cause the, it's funny. The two rules are like, they're, they look almost identical in length. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though non-consecutive is obviously a longer word than consecutive. Yeah. But so those two rules right next to each other, it does look <laughs> like they might be saying the exact same thing. Yeah. Interesting. It's weird because you look at it now and you're like, that is so obviously different. But 
for whatever reason. Uh, yeah, I read it as the same rule, and I didn't catch it until the second question. So I went back and did Oof. the first question over again. Oof. Um, but well, thankfully for the first question, I don't, I don't know why I didn't have to do that much. I actually got the right answer with the wrong interpretation and I just confirmed it and it was right. So I moved on. Yeah. Well, so, so it's interesting because the first, the first question here is actually not asking you at all about that third rule. Mm -hmm. So you should have been able to get the first one, right? Yeah, um, and even even if you had misinterpreted the I mean, third rule, and I got nervous because I didn't know what you know what impact would it have. I didn't know for sure, so I re went and redid it. But yeah, um, yeah. Well, you have to. That's a good point. I mean, when you realize that you have fucked something up, you had better you know basically start over and check mm -hmm. and make sure because you could have just been going under wrong assumptions for the entire time and just missed all of them. Yeah, it's bad news when that happens. You really need to avoid that happening. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. when it does happen, there's nothing you could do except for just bite the bullet and start over. Yeah. Okay, cool. So now, then when, I, was, I was glad I caught it then. I mean, it's kind of the clue of like, well, wait a sec, there's more than one right answer here. And that was what tipped me Good, out. good, good. Yeah. And that's an important, that's an important point to make. I mean, the, the reason why we insist on 100% accuracy on the logic games is that you need to train yourself to understand that there is only one right answer and it is objectively right. It mm -hmm. is certainly right. Yeah. You just heard Ben and I, you know, argue for 30 minutes about one logical reasoning question, right? There, there, there is some play in the mm -hmm. logical reasoning and we're going to have, we're going to argue about what words mean and we're going to have some, you know, there's going to be some shades of meaning and on the logical reasoning, you're frequently picking the best answer, even though the best answer might be pretty shitty. It just is better than the other really shitty answers. That does not happen at all on the logic games. No. And so what Ben is talking about there is he realized he was doing, I guess you were doing 16, right, Ben? Because you're right. doing the if doing questions 16. first. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he's doing um, the second, he's attempting his second question on this game, mm -hmm. and he all of a sudden realizes, oh, shit, there's two correct answers here. <laughs> And yeah. if you say, oh, shit, there's two correct answers on the logic games, that does not mean that the game is broken. It does not mean that you should randomly guess. It means that your approach is broken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have misread a rule. You have left a rule out. You did something wrong in your diagram. There's something wrong here. Yeah. And you have to train yourself at that point. That is like absolutely hit the brakes go back, reread everything, essentially reboot, start over because there cannot be two correct answers. Yeah. And I think what so many students would do is they've just got their foot on the gas and they're just like, well, ah, whatever, I can't figure it out. Ah, okay, fine, just move on. And then they blunder into 17 and 18 and, you know, they they just miss everything at that point. Yeah. Because that that's the game, you know, the game is giving you a chance there to save yourself. Mhm. Mm and and you really got to I think you really got to do it there. Well, the, the thing about it was I did not end up reading the initial paragraph. Uh, you might need to do that, but to save time, I just checked off the one, two, three, six rules. Yep. And as I was going through them, as soon as I saw that mistake, I mean, I guess it's a slight gamble, but I figured that was the, hey, there is a definite mistake here that I've made. It's yeah. probably not anywhere else. And I just went and redid things from there yeah. at that point. Well, you're pretty good at the games. You know you're pretty good at the games. 
mm-hmm. you're not likely to make any mistakes. But if you did make a mistake, you know, you probably only made one mistake. So yeah, that's, I, I think, <laughs> I think that's fine. You find an error, you fix that error, you go mm-hmm. back to number 16 and then you were able to answer it. Yeah. Right. And it, the, and you saw like, oh shit, uh, I thought there were two answers, but see, that was the mistake that I had made and see now this is the only one answer. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, so that was a confidence booster at that point. And then, I mean, cause once you know what's going on, then it's just a matter of execution. Right. I did feel like, uh, so I did end up doing the if questions first. Yep. I think that what ended up happening for me is that in these if questions, I created worlds. Absolutely. And so um, I said, wait a sec, I don't know much from this clue, but there are only two options for whatever right. was going on. And then, or in some cases, I think I created three, but right. I just, did the worlds there. And this is something I tell people in class a lot. I say, um, you know, they wanted to know, hey, you just did worlds there at the beginning of that game, and that made that game 300 times easier. How do you know when to do this? And we've talked about this before on the show, but um, I, I like to tell them, too, I say, hey, look, if you didn't do worlds, it's not the end of the world because... If you do the if questions first, they should help you. If they don't, as they, I feel like they didn't do in this game, which is, I think, what you were saying as well, um, you can still create worlds. You can still subdivide things and say, hey, look, there's a lot of variables up in the air right now. Let me bring them back down by pinning one here and another one there. And if there are only two options or only three options, just start doing it because pretty soon you'll start making inferences and you can figure out the answer and then you can use those diagrams for other questions, which I did do uh, for 15. I felt like 15, which was just asking which one of the following must be true, was easy because I had a lot of worlds to reference. Right. Right. So um, I think that's a good point that on the if questions, uh, a lot of times the if questions are going to be really easy because it'll give you a restriction that makes it so that there's just only one way to do it and you just figure it out. Mm Mm-hmm. But other times, an if question will give you um, a rule that doesn't lead you clearly to just one way of doing it, but it might lead you to two ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. And in that case, like when in doubt, just go ahead and start penciling. Just do it. Just just work it out. You, you know, you, you be, might be reluctant, like, oh, boy, it's going to be a big waste of time. But, you know, probably making those two scenarios isn't going to take you that long after all. You end up answering the question with certainty. And then maybe, yeah, like Ben said, you end up using those diagrams for later questions. Plus two diagrams, if it really is just two, which is great, uh, it's a lot fewer than five Yeah, or right. four. So here's here was my experience with this game. Um, the, and the reason why I was interesting and I wanted to bring it up with you is that when I've, I've adopted this approach recently of doing the if questions first on the logic games. So I'll do the list question if there is a list question. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, we can argue about whether fourteen really is a list question. Right? Yeah, because it's I would partial, say it's not. Yeah, it's par- I think you're right. I think it's a mm-hmm. partial list question. So, you know, it's it could be that you end up not being able to answer fourteen even, um, mm-hmm. and maybe you skip fourteen because it's a partial list question. I actually, I didn't, I didn't end up skipping it, but yeah, yeah, you could. I mean, it might have been a better approach is to go, is to go straight to sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and then go back to fourteen, fifteen here. But yeah, point is. 
I answered 14, didn't stop me. Skipped 15, I went to 16, looking to do the if questions. And the condition in 16 was like, wait, that's not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And I had had earlier, before I went into the questions at all, when I got done with reading the setup and reading the rules, I, I like to do games, you know, offensively, right? I'm trying to attack the games. Yeah. And I saw that second rule, the one about Louise, mm -hmm. and I thought about it. I, I thought about like, hey, you know, there's only four ways to do this with Louise. Yeah. Yeah. And Louise is mentioned in the last rule. Louise mm -hmm. is mentioned again. Yeah. And I thought about it. And then I went, you know, I don't want to overcomplicate things here. I, I don't want to over-engineer. If this game turns out to be easy, I don't want to over-engineer it and do too much work up front. But when I got kind of stymied on number 16, mm -hmm. I actually went, I just immediately went back and I penciled out four worlds based on Louise. Yeah. And when you do that, one of the four worlds dies. Yeah. There's one of those four scenarios based on Louise that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And it took me a minute to figure that out. But once I figured that out, then all the rest of the questions just completely fell apart. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was an interesting game where, you know, I thought about doing the worlds, but I said like, ooh, four worlds, that sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't want to do that. But then got stuck on one of the questions and said, oh, you know, rather than do a lot of independent testing for because I who knows what 17 and 18 and 15 are all going to ask me, right? So it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, if I'm going to do a lot of work, maybe I'll just do all the work. Yeah. Right off the bat, because it's not that hard to just pencil out four scenarios based on Louise. Mm -hmm. And when I made those four scenarios, again, I made those four scenarios based on Louise. One of those scenarios uh, would not work. You get to cross that one out. Now you've only got three templates. You've made a big inference about one day that Louise can't ever work. And then you just knock out the rest of the questions. So I thought it was, I thought it was interesting because it kind of brought me back to like more old school way of, I used, of how I used to do the games. Yeah. And I just, I, I'm happy that I have like two ways to get there now. You know, mm -hmm. it's amazing. I feel like I'm still getting better at the games. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. That's really good to know. There's, you know, um, uh, there's different ways to attack these games and having multiple options, I think, is what's helpful. It's when people get stuck and they don't know what to do yeah. that, that creates the most problems. Yeah, we, we are not teaching you recipes. <laughs> We're not teaching you like formulas that you memorize. We're trying to teach you fundamental principles of cooking mm -hmm. so that you can cobble together a solution to whatever game you're faced with. And there are many ways to get there. And I do it in class all the time. I don't know about you, Ben, but I mean, I'll start off doing a game like some weird way on purpose mm -hmm. just to be like, hey, I never thought about this before. What if we approach the game this way? And then, you know, so frequently it actually works. Yeah. So there's there's lots of ways to get there. You just have to follow the rules, you know, pay attention to the rules, do exactly what they say. And then, yeah, there's there's several different ways that might get you there. There's not, there is definitely no one exact way to solve a game like this. For sure. So, um, I apologize, Nathan, I better, better hop off. I'm meeting someone right after this, but, um, I think we covered everything. Did you have anything yeah. else? 
No, we made it through the agenda. Um, again, you can tweet at thinkinglsat. You can email help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, please keep the questions coming. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Cool. Thanks so much. All right. See thanks, man. See ya. Bye.